0: Matthew chapter 23 verses 23 through 39 Jesus says woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to look closely at what Jesus is saying here. He's pointing out once again that the law of God was to point to and to get to the condition of our hearts. Go back to verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to go take you back to that in just a second. So, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed them that focusing on the outward actions, Did not let the Holy Spirit speak to your deeper issue, the issue of your sinful heart condition. We've said for years, and you already understand that the purpose of the law was to show them their sinfulness and to drive them to the Savior and have them realize they needed help because they were not able to keep the law perfectly. But there was something deeper going on as well. And I'm going to show it to you tonight from the Old Testament that Jesus has been trying to get them to understand is the law you got. I gave you the law to show you the heart of God and also to reveal where your hearts really are. But instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, you guys focused on the letter of the law. And by the way, we have a tendency to do that as well. And we'll touch on that a little bit tonight. But Jesus says, look, you you focus so much on the tithing of the mint and the dill and the cumin that you neglected the weightier matters of the law, the deeper issues of the law. Go back to Matthew chapter five again and look at verses twenty seven through twenty eight. Matthew chapter 25, verse, sorry, chapter 5, verses 27 and through 28. Look what Jesus says here. He said, you heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, they were looking at the outward action. But Jesus says, no, the, the law was trying to reveal your heart, your heart condition. By the way, as a pastor for years I've had to deal with this as well, as people would come to me over the years and say, I know the Bible says we're not to have sex outside of marriage, but is this legal? And I would always say to the people, do you realize your question just revealed your heart? Because you didn't ask me, how close can I get to Jesus? You asked me, how close can I get to sin? And we... We try to focus on the letter of the law and we totally miss the whole intent of the law that it was to get to our hearts. Look again at Matthew 15. Look at Matthew 15 verses 7 through 9. In Matthew 15 verses 7 through 9, Jesus says, You hypocrites, While did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. We've talked about that and we'll touch on it some more tonight about how the Pharisees not only tried to get people to focus on the letter of the law, they also added specific man-made traditions and and things like that to it. And so the people now were focusing more on not just the law of God and the letter of the law, not the heart, but also they were focusing on the traditions of man and the commandments of men. And they started focusing on that instead of what the, the Lord was trying to get to. Look at chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. And he said, "Are you still also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from a heart from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts: murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Again, this was tied to the Pharisees saying, your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Well, what they meant was, your disciples aren't following the man-made traditions of how you're to wash your hair and ceremonially. And so they were focusing on that stuff. But again... Let me just remind you of something. You remember how when the Pharisees noticed that Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath and they took some heads of the grain and they threshed it a little bit and blew away the chaff and ate the grain. And they came and said, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus points out to them. He says, don't you remember how that shoe bread, the holy bread was only to be eaten by the priests. But in that one situation, when David and his men were hungry God allowed them to eat it. In other words, he was showing them, look, it's not the letter of the law that God's focusing on, but the heart of the law. And so, folks, that's where we're going to go tonight a little bit from our passage here in Matthew 23. But I want to show you first, though, that God's law and the prophets had been showing people this all along, that it was about the heart of the law, not the letter of the law. Let me show you a couple examples. Go to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. You're going to hear this come up later on in our study. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and in offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, a delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So here again, the, the Old Testament was pointing to the fact that the law of God was to get to our hearts. And actually, it wasn't really about the sacrifices and the letter of the law. Go to Micah chapter. Actually, we're in Psalm. Go to Psalm 51 first. Then we'll back up to Micah. Go to Psalm 51. Look at verses 16 and 17. David, and we'll come back to this psalm a little later tonight as well. David has committed this bad sin with Bathsheba and in his repentance psalm here, look at what he says in verse 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Again, David, in the midst of his anguish and his repentance for what he did with Bathsheba, and we'll come back to this passage and look more closely at it. He says, you're not wanting me to do sacrifices to get it right. What you're wanting is a broken and contrite heart. Yet how many of us over the years have thought, all right, Lord, I'll make it up to you. I'll do this. I'll do that. And God says, that's not what I'm looking for. It's not what I'm looking for. Go to Micah chapter six. As you're turning to Micah chapter six, let me set the stage for you. God has set up a courtroom scene and he's called Israel into the court and he's just declared them guilty and worthy of judgment. This is their response in Micah chapter six, starting in verse six. This is what they say. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Well, well maybe that's not enough. Maybe maybe he wants me to do something greater. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Well, maybe that's not enough. How about ten thousands of rivers of oil? You know, maybe he, he wants me to do a little bit more than that. Maybe I've got to try harder. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Does he want me to kill my kid? To make it up, and then God answers, He's shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, in our passage for today, in verse 23 that we're looking at right now, you guys are so focused on the letter of the law, your tithe, your dill, your mint, your cumin. You. Yet you've ignored and missed the weightier matters, the deeper issues of the law, mercy, justice, these types of things. And by the way, when Jesus says you strain it a gnat and swallow a camel, you may not realize this, but the Pharisees, in order to not break the letter of the law, you know, there are certain things that were unclean to eat. Gnats and bugs were one of them. So what they would do is they would strain all of their drinks through a cloth, just in case a gnat got into it and they didn't drink. We've all done that, haven't we? We've finished, drink, like, what was that? Oh, You know, we've all done that. But the Pharisees, to make sure that they wouldn't be unclean because they swallowed a gnat, they actually would strain their drinks to keep the gnats out. Jesus says, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You totally miss the point. The Jews didn't, well, before we get there, go to Hebrews chapter 10. The sacrifices that we've been looking at Prescribed in the law were pointing to Christ. We're going to look at Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. The sacrifices prescribed in the law were pointing to Christ and that we needed blood to take away our sins. And another thing it was pointing out, though, was the fact that these sacrifices were having to be repeated, were showing what? Does anybody know what that was showing? That they couldn't do it themselves. That, they couldn't, that sacrifices weren't accomplishing the purpose. They were ultimately pointing to Christ, but the fact that they had to be repeated was an eye-opener, if you will, to, hey, if this was working, I wouldn't have to keep doing it. You've all heard the saying that, you know, one of the greatest acts of stupidity is to try to keep doing the same thing, hoping for a different result. In the same way, they had to start to realize, you know what? As much as God said, do this, um, if it was making me clean, why do I have to keep doing it? But look at Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. But does anybody have any idea where that's quoting from? Um, Psalm where? We were just there. Chapter 40, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. That's almost word for word. Well, we just saw in Psalm 46 through 8, it was pointing to Christ. Now, when he, Jesus said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. By the way, these are offered according to the law. He then added, behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, folks, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, we got to let this sink in for a minute. I'm going to put a couple of verses here in Hebrews 10 together for you. Look at verse one. Since the law is a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Yet then he goes down and he says, but Jesus, after offering that one sacrifice, stopped. There's a couple things I want you to see. If he stopped offering, He's offered his sacrifice of his body once for all. Is it capable of making you clean so you don't have any more consciousness of your sins? Then how come so many of us as Christians spend so much time trying to take care of our sin problem? Now, don't misunderstand. We still struggle with the flesh and we still wrestle with sin in that sense. But how many of us and myself included over the years have thought, oh, Lord, you got to forgive me. And Jesus says, I've already paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. This one preacher's wife one time came to him and said, He said to her husband, Honey, I got a problem. I can understand Jesus' death covering my past sins, but I have a hard time understanding how his death will cover the sins that I'm going to commit tomorrow. Anybody else have that same kind of a struggle? The pastor's answer to his wife was truly wise. He said, um, when Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, how many of your sins were future? Isn't that interesting? We think that his death covers what we've already done, but we struggle with the fact that it's already covered what we'll do tomorrow. Yet when he died, they were all tomorrow. Let that truth sink in. Yeah, here's what I want you to understand. He died for everybody. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. They got to receive this gift. But let me say this to you. And this is talking to Jim Johnson as well. When I sin, I still confess. I still agree with God that what I did was not appropriate and it was sin. Yet what I do now, instead of saying, would you please forgive me? I thank him for my forgiveness. Do you understand the difference? Because I've already gotten forgiven for it. It hinders my fellowship with him if I walk in it and he's grieved for what I'm missing out. But I don't have to do something to make it right. We a lot of times try to do things to make it up to God. There is no penance needed. You don't have to do so many Hail Marys. You don't have to do all these things that we were taught to get back and right graces with God. But the Jews didn't look at what God's law was pointing to and showing. And and as we saw last week, they added stuff as requirements. By the way, do you know we've done that as well? I touched on it a little bit last week and we get into the whole women can't wear pants and all this kind of silliness. But how many of you were taught to observe Lent? Yeah. That's a man-made tradition. And buddy, were you in trouble if you didn't observe Lent? I'm gonna throw something else out to you. I'm not saying it's bad to have a Good Friday service, but at the same time, why do we judge each other for the fact that you didn't go to the Good Friday service? Mm, we didn't have one this year. You didn't have one this year? Uh oh. <laughs> Let me say something to you. If you've never read the book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God, get it. It's a simple little paperback. He wrote the whole book on one train ride. The Holy Spirit just took over. Powerful, powerful book. By the way, you think it's us pursuing God. You're going to find out by the end of the book, it's God pursuing you. But in chapter 10, he deals with this concept, this misnomer of the fact that some things are secular and some things are sacred. And he lays out. That there's no such thing as something secular and something sacred. Everything is sacred because everything's supposed to be done to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, everything was made by, for, and through Christ. Exactly. But he brings out in this chapter, and I love how he puts it, how we observe days and weeks and months and years. And then he makes this statement. He said, we didn't know when we were well off. We don't realize it, folks. We always look at those bad Pharisees. Oh, no. We have that same flesh. We have that same struggle. We still want some credit with what we're doing to make things right before God. God says, I have paid for your sins, past, present, future. I have made you complete. Now you have to learn how to walk in that. That's all. It's a daily process of learning to walk into what it is we've already received. That's how we work out the salvation that we've received. Because it's God who works in us both to will and to act according to his good purpose. We still think he needs our help sanctifying ourselves. May your whole body, soul and spirit be kept blameless to the coming of the Lord. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. They focused on how they were doing and following the rules and they judged others Accordingly, Write this down, look at it later on. We don't have time tonight to go there. But in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. How the Pharisee prayed this way. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe, I do this, I do that, and I'm not like this tax collector. But Jesus said the tax collector wouldn't even look his eyes up to heaven. He just beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man, as one went back to his house justified. Now, I want to take you back to Matthew 23, verse 23, and pull out one more thing from this verse. And I want you to hear my heart, and I want you not to get mad at me. But I'm going to talk to you about something that Christians fight over, but they, they fight over it because they get focused on the letter of the law, not the heart of the law. Look again at Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, listen closely, without neglecting the others. Did you catch that? What was he saying that they should not have neglected as well? It's a T word that we don't like to use. Tithing. Tithing. Wait a minute, Jim. I've been taught all my life that the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. Jesus never talked about tithing. Yes, he did. In Matthew 23, 23, he said, you guys tithe and you've totally missed the weightier matters of the law. You should have practiced the weightier without neglecting the former. Now stick with me. I'm not trying to put you all back under the law because we're not under law. But have we not been looking at the fact that the law was also given to show us our hearts? And where our hearts really should be. I want to talk to you tonight about giving, tithing, generosity. And I hope you hear that God wants us to look at this from an attitude of the proper heart attitude. I'm not trying to put you back under the law. I'm not saying if you don't tithe, you're sinning. But I also want you to start thinking about the fact of what did you how did you react when I used even the word tithe? Did you rejoice or did you get your flesh up in a tizzy there? Go to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 17 through 19 to start with. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So, even though we're not under the law, it doesn't make the law all of a sudden not there and not powerful and not valuable. Go to Romans chapter 7. In verse 6, he says this. In Romans 7, verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what I want to talk to you about tonight is allowing the spirit of God to speak to you when it comes to your giving and your tithing and your offerings and generosity, because God actually gave us his law, the tithe, to get to our hearts That's what it's about. It's really about your heart, not about the letter of the law. Jim is not teaching that Christians in the New Testament church have to tithe. not saying that at all. As you're going to see tonight, if your heart's not in it, you're wasting your time giving it. If you're going to give a regular tithe and you're begrudging and you're doing it because you feel obligated or Jim said you had to do it, you better stop because it ain't going to do you any good. That's kind of like offering sacrifices that aren't pleasing to God. But there's a heart issue that I want you to see. Let me let me take you back. Go to Gen- Genesis chapter 28. By the way, we're about to read a story that was hundreds of years before the law was given. Genesis chapter 28. Look at verses 10. Through 22. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. This says, Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. By the way, he took his pillar and made a pillar. Never mind. Uh, Some of you, some of you might have caught that. I don't know. All right. And he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. That means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Where did that come from? That came from his heart. There was no law. He wasn't saying, okay, I'll keep your law. The law didn't come till Moses. Yet in his worship, in his, you said you're going to take care of me. You're going to make me a great nation and and you're going to provide for me and there's a future for me. God, I so trust you. I'm going to give to you. Tenth of whatever comes in to show my heart of trust in you. I'm not going to protect myself. I'm not going to try to take care of myself. I'm going to give back to you. The tithe, that worship response is a heart thing, not a letter of the law thing. But so many Christians today are actually like, well, we're not under the law. Yeah, but what about the heart of the law? What about the heart of the law? God's law is still holy and righteous and good. Because of our flesh, it makes us not want to do it. And there's all those issues there. But it doesn't change the fact that the law is still God's law. Again, I don't want to put you under the law. If your heart is not responding appropriately to what I share with you, and I'm going to show you a bunch more scriptures, don't do it. But I just want you to allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart when it comes to your giving. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Look at verses one through eight. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their own means. And as I can testify beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so should he complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything—in faith, and in speech, and knowledge, in all earnestness and our love for you—see also that you excel in this act of grace as well. I don't say this as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Do you see what he's saying? They're taking an offering for the people in Jerusalem that were having a real hard time. And the people in Macedonia, even though they were poor and going through a struggle themselves, they're like, we want to give to that. We want to help. And by the way, folks, I just made a couple of radio programs. They won't be recorded or aired until October, November. But I'm going through the book of Acts and we got to the sixth situation where this prophet Agabus comes and he makes this prophecy that there's going to be this worldwide famine. And it actually came true in the time of Claudius. And the believers, new believers response was, well, let's take up an offering real quick for all the people who going to be a need when that happens. Their first thought was not, well, we need to stockpile. I need to get our supplies ready to take care of our family. Their first thought was, let's make sure people are taken care of. And they wanted to give. What did the early church do? If anybody had need, they just shared it. They lumped it into a pile. Early church believers, because of their heart of trust in God and worship of God, so believing that he was going to keep his promises to us like uh, them, like he did. We saw in Genesis with Jacob, the early church, they would even sell a piece of property and give the money to the church. Oh, how come Ananias and Sapphira got in trouble with God? Was it because they kept some back? No. No. Because they lied. They pretended like they were giving it all. But their heart wasn't that. Their heart was, we're going to keep some, pretend to be more spiritual than we are. And God judged their hearts. Again, we have gotten so excited about the fact that we're not under law, but under grace, that a lot of us haven't allowed the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts when it comes to giving. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verses 6 through 13. Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You know why? Because we're not under the law. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, as it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He, God, who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contr- contribution for them and for all others. Folks, let me just share something with you. For Becky and I, and I have permission from my wife to share this. When we first were married and we were very poor, you've heard me share many a time before, our income of our first year of marriage was less than $6,000 for the whole year, combined income. But God took care of us and we tithed. But back then, we would calculate almost to the penny what our tithe was. And There came a point down the road over the years where God began to work on our hearts because we were worried about the letter of the law, not the heart of the law. So instead of saying, Lord, we kept the tithe and we gave a tenth of everything that came in, we started to say this is supposed to be a giving that's from our heart, saying, we trust you. We worship you. We thank you. And so we started just writing a bigger check every week. Instead of what the tithe was, we went more. Just said, we're not even going to do the math. We trust you. We know this is more than a tenth. We give. And folks, let me tell you, over the years, he has done what he said he would do here. And he's provided for us to the point... I will not give you the percentage because if I told you you'd think I was bragging or you'd think I was a liar, but if you want to, I can give you uh, our accountant's name and number and he can testify. God has so blessed us that now our giving is way more than 10% of our income. And you know what? It goes up every year because God keeps blessing us. But it stopped being a letter of the law thing and became a heart thing. And we started to find out It's a blast to give. It's a blast to give. And as we do, God just keeps saying, well, if you're going to keep spreading it out, I'm going to use you to keep spreading it out. And he keeps providing more and more. And I'm telling you, folks, I don't want to put you back under the law. But don't listen to the people that say the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. It actually does. How they gave themselves first to the Lord and then they gave the extra offering on top of it. The Bible talks about tithes and offerings and the law didn't go away. But God wanted us to understand the heart of it. When you give at least 10 percent, you're saying, Lord, I trust you. You got me. And you worship him and you're giving. And I want you to let the spirit of God begin to speak to you in that area there. Because I think we've run in the other direction, saying "Well, we're not under the law. And we don't let God speak to our hearts again. I don't want you doing it for the wrong reasons. Go back to Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. I'm not going to spend too much time on this section because it's very self-explanatory. Matthew 23, verses 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, we all know that it's possible to look good on the outside, but have a different thing going on on the inside. And since God uh, looks at the heart, it's possible that God's not as impressed with people in the church that you're impressed with. By the way, any of you over the years been shocked when you saw how a prominent preacher all of a sudden was found to have a double life? (gasps) Guess what? They're just as human as everybody else. We know how to show up on Sunday in our best clothes and smile and put on a front. But God knows our hearts. Uh, Write down these two passages uh, and look at them later on along this line if you want to. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 through 10 says this. It says, uh, The heart is deceitful beyond all things. Actually, NIV says beyond cure. Uh, ESV says, Desperately sick. And then verse 10 goes on and says, God says, I, the Lord, search the hearts. Let me just tell you something about your heart. And um, because we're still in our wrestling against our flesh, we have to understand that it still has that struggle. Your heart's got a problem, and it's beyond cure. And you need a new heart. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Also, here's the other one. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. God is, 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7. God sent Samuel to anoint the next king of Israel, one of Jesse's sons. And he's already told him. I'm going to show you which one. I've, I've already picked him. Of course, Samuel, being just like you and me, thinks I can figure this out. And uh, he looks at the first guy, Eliab, and says, this has got to be the one. And God says, no, don't look at his outward appearance. I've rejected him. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And again, in Ezekiel 36, go to Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. There's a promise that's going to be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period for the nation of Israel, but hopefully you know all the promises for Israel are ours now in the church. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 26, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And a new spirit, I'm going to put it within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, at the end of the tribulation period, when the Jews that survive uh, turn to the Lord in faith. He's going to put his spirit within them, give them a new heart and he's going to cause them to obey his, his commands. We have that available to us now. We've been washed clean. He's put his spirit within us and he's given us a new heart. And, but at the same time, we choose each day whether or not we're going to walk in the flesh or walk in the newness of life that we have. We're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But we can choose to, to walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. Going now with me to Psalm 51, because I'm going to take you back to that passage we looked at. And I hope you see it now in a whole new light. I, I, I was, as I was doing this study, all of a sudden, Psalm 51, especially the last verse we're going to look at, I got it. In a way I had never seen it before. And I've read this passage over and over. Look closely at what David says. Remember this is because of his sin with Bathsheba. Look at what David says in Psalm 51 verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. By the way, he didn't say that the act that she did, it was sinful or anything like that. Just simply. You all understand that sin's passed on to every one of us from the moment we've been conceived. It's been passed on to us. We're born sinners. Takes us a while to recognize it, but. If you ever raised a kid, you know that you didn't have to teach him to say mine, bite, lie. You didn't have to teach him that stuff. Uh, We were born in iniquity. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Look at this next verse. Create in me. A clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Again, Old Testament, that he would remove his spirit, but that's nothing we have to fear in the New Testament. For it's to order me the joy of your salvation and then uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'll give it. You'll not be pleased with the burnt offering, but the sacrifice of God or a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Look at verse 19. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Wait a minute, didn't he just say? You don't delight in sacrifices or outside do it. What he was saying was, look, I used to think that I had to do these sacrifices to get you to like me again. That's not what you're looking for. You just want me to humble myself and acknowledge I'm a mess. Thank you for your forgiveness. You make me clean. You wash me. I'm falling at your feet again. Everything you want me to be, I need you to do it. But then he says, and once my heart's in the right place, I will do the things you describe in your law from the right heart. Do you understand? I will tithe. I'll give. But it'll be right sacrifices. It'll be right bulls offered on your altar, if you will. It'll come from what you desired all along that new heart. Folks, let me give you another example. You know, in the law, we've always wrestled with this, because if the law is still the law, well, to be honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, I mean, that's one of the Ten Commandments. And I say to you, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 says that the the, the Sabbath was designed by God in the fact that he worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested from his labors. Now, did God rest because he was tired? So it must have a different reason. And He was pointing to, again, everything in the law and the prophets point to who? To Christ and what's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And then the Hebrew writer says in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Hebrews, when we stop working to get into heaven and by faith receive what Jesus has done, we enter that rest. Folks, when I trust in Jesus on a daily basis, I am honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. The heart of the Sabbath was to point to Jesus and ceasing from your work and resting in his. That's why he said man wasn't made to fill the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And so, folks, you are still keeping the law. If you're trusting in Christ, you're honoring the Sabbath and the purpose of the Sabbath and you're keeping it holy. It's not a day. That's the letter of the law. It's the heart of the law. The heart of the law is I'm not working to get into heaven anymore. I've ceased working. I'm resting in Christ. I'm honoring the Sabbath. In the same way. The law of God is right and holy and good and your flesh doesn't want to do it, but we don't serve in the old way the written code anymore. It's no longer about the letter of the law. And we spend too much time judging people around us whether or not we think they're keeping the letter of the law. And let's be honest, folks, most of the letter of the laws that we in the church over the years have judged people on have all been man-made traditions on what they're wearing, whether or not they got a tattoo, whether or not they got piercings, all these other things like that. We're making judgments on what we think is right and wrong. And actually, God's looking at their heart. And actually, there might be someone sitting in our church that's all prettied up with their suit and tie and looks really good on the outside, but God knows that inside they're not where they belong. And there could be someone on the outside that doesn't look like what we think they ought to look like. And God knows their heart and they're there and they're broken, repentant. And God is pleased with that one. So I want to say to you, there's going to be a daily struggle. And you have to learn how to lay your flesh on the altar and have a right heart and a right spirit and ask God to give it to you. But that doesn't mean that you don't still offer right sacrifices. Just have them come from your heart, not from the law. Now, in the last verses, I'm not going to, for the sake of time, read the last verses in chapter 23, because we need to wrap up, so keep us where we're going to be next week coming to chapter 24. Let me just make a commercial. If you can at all be here next week, please, please, please. I have been chomping at the bit to get to chapter 24, because I honestly think chapter 24, Matthew, is probably one of the most incorrectly taught chapters in the Bible. And I'm going to take some time to show you what the whole purpose of it is and how it all ties together. We're going to parallel Matthew 24 with the book of Revelation and we're going to dovetail them. And I'm going to show you how Jesus is talking about a specific time period and how the church has been read into it over the years when the church really shouldn't be focused on Matthew 24 in the sense of it's not speaking to us as much as it's speaking to the Jews. I'm going to lay that all out for you next week. But in the end of our chapter for tonight, Jesus, knowing their hearts that they desired to kill him, points out that they were no different from their fathers, even though they would honor the tombs of the prophets that their fathers put to death. And they also said that they were different. Remember how he says, you guys honor the tombs of the prophets that your fathers killed. And you say, even though our fathers killed them, we wouldn't have done that if we were alive at their time. He said, let me point out two things to you. One, uh, you just testified that you're their descendants. And he says, "Um, because I know your hearts, go ahead and fill up the rest of what your fathers are doing and go to John chapter 11. Let me show you what I mean. In John chapter 11, look at verses 45 through 53. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. John 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Of course, they got it in the order that they felt about it. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Isn't that interesting? This conversation happened prior to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 23. They've already had their conversation about how they're going to put him to death. But what do they say? Oh, if we were alive at the time of our fathers, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. Uh, Jesus says, "Uh, I know your hearts. You're just like your dads and you've already testified you're like your dads. Just go ahead and finish what you're going to do. Fill up the measure of your fathers. And then look at verse 34. Tell me this doesn't read like the book of Acts. He says, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Does that not read like the book of Acts? If you don't know the book of Acts, by the way, wherever the preachers went, the Jews were chasing them from that town. Chased them out of that town. I out what town they went to next. Chased them out of that town. Oh, by the way, did they crucify anybody besides Jesus? They sure did. His name was Peter. They were flogging them. They're having Stephen stoned. Jesus knew full well what their hearts was. It didn't matter what they said or how good they looked to everybody around them. Jesus knew their hearts. But I also want to point out something really cool. Look at the next verse. He says, in verse 35 So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I want you to notice how Jesus knows every person who was put to death from their, for their righteousness. He lists the very first martyr in the, in the Old Testament. And he lists the last one. Go to Zechariah chapter 1. We don't have written in Zechariah how Zechariah the prophet died, but we do know his name and we know who his daddy was according to Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. It says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, So Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. Who's Zechariah's dad? Go back to Matthew 23, verse 35. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. By the way, Jesus lists the first one and the last one who had been killed. He knows every single one. I don't want you to miss that. Go to 1 John chapter 3. I could take you to Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, but you all know the story how Cain killed his brother Abel. But 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 gives us a little bit more information. 1 John chapter 3, look at verses 11 and 12. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds are evil and his brother's righteous. Folks, Jesus points out that he knew the first one and the last one in the Old Testament who had been killed for their righteousness, and he's keeping track. Now, look at Psalm 56. Actually, go to Hebrews 6 first. We'll get time for this. Go to Hebrews chapter 6, then we'll go to Psalm 56. Have you ever, and I'm not asked for a show of hands here, have you ever had... Uh, Time where you wondered if God really knew what you were going through, (laughs) if he was there, if he was paying attention. Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12 tells us this. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God knows. He's paying attention. But I'm going to show you that it's even deeper than that. It's even deeper than that. We know that He said in Matthew 6 that we're of more value than the sparrows and more valuable than the birds. But go to Psalm 56 and look at verse 8. We know that Matthew tells us that he keeps track of every hair on our head. But did you know that he kept track of every tear? Look at Psalm 56, verse 8. You've kept count of my tossings and you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Folks, there's not a thing that's going on that he doesn't know. And he is keeping track. Oh, by the way, he's keeping track for the wicked. We all know that, don't we? He's keeping track of every little thing. They'll be held accountable for every idle word, it says in the scriptures. He's keeping track of all that. Don't lose sight of the fact that he's keeping track of everything we go through here. And he responds and rewards us. Listen, not for the letter of the raw response, not for the right words, because if we honor him with our lips, but our hearts aren't involved, there's no reward. But if our heart is sincere and we do trust him, even though we cry, even though we weep, even though we anguish. But Lord, I'm going to trust you anyway. I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. But I'm going to trust you anyway. That attitude will be rewarded. And Paul made a little hint to us. He Remember, he got to see heaven. He got to see the third heaven, the paradise. He wasn't allowed to talk about what he saw. But he did say this much. He said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing the glory to be revealed. In other words, listen to what he said. He said, when you get there and see it. You're going to forget all the rest. All the stuff you're going through now. You're going to forget it. It's not even worth comparing. So hang on. Would we not agree the day is getting closer? Hang on and keep faithful. Now, in the last verses of our study for tonight, Jesus points out. That the coming destruction of Jerusalem, he points out about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and and the temple, which occurred later on in AD 70. We'll go into a lot more detail about that next, next week. But when he says, you won't see me again, your house is left to you desolate. And you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll deal with this more next week. But when he says your house is left to you desolate, what's he talking about? His body. No. The temple. He's talking about the temple. Your, your house is less to, left to you desolate. We're going to go into a lot more detail about that next week. But I want that, you to start meditating on that a little bit. You're going to see why the, Jew, the disciples come and ask the questions about the temple immediately after this. They start pointing out the temple. Remember how he said he's just said, your house, your temple is going to be left to you desolate. They it's been under a massive construction project for many years by Herod. It had been started in the B.C. time period in 20 B.C. And it's been building and beautiful and spectacular. And they had enlarged the Temple Mount area and they had added more underneath structure and all this stuff in the Jewish mindset. Especially the disciples were like, we know the prophecies are talking about how you're going to come and set up your kingdom and the temple's going to be involved in how in the world is this all going to fit together if it's going to be left desolate? And that's what we're going to get to next week when Jesus says, Not one stone's going to be left on top of another. But then he says, You won't see me until you say, You won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Keep this in mind. Has the triumphal entry happened yet when he says that? Yes, it had. We're in Matthew 23. Go back to Matthew 21 and you'll see he's already had the triumphal entry. This is all happening in the last week of his life. They've already said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they're going to reject him and kill him. Just like the Daniel prophecy said that they would. We'll get into that next week, too. So Jesus says, after they've already said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've already had the triumphal entry. He says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he hints at a second coming and a welcoming. Go to Psalm 118. We'll close tonight with Psalm 118. Look at verses 19 through 29. A prophecy about the coming kingdom and the return of Christ. Psalm 118, starting in verse 19 Psalm 118, verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. By the way, that's Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success but it's going to be ultimately fulfilled in the second coming. We'll get into that a lot more next week. I can't wait to break down Matthew 24 for you. It'll probably take us a couple of weeks, but we'll get started on it next week. Thanks for coming. Love y'all.